Rose darling, I'm gonna go back on the road. I've gotta go see Lyle. But Dad, how are you? Well, I haven't quite got that figured yet. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Straight Story. I'm a netto with Salvin, and he's driving his lawnmower. Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. I still want to finish this the way I started. Hosted by Stuart. As you've always struck me as a smart man. Well, that's appreciated. Until now. <laughs> Jacob. There's a lot of weird people everywhere now. And Arnie. Still at my age, I've seen about all that life has to dish out. And join Stuart, Arnie, and Jacob at NowPeaking.com for reviews of every episode of the Twin Peaks series. Where do they come from? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Oh, she's dead. Oh, geez, Dad. Listener discretion is advised. Well, let's take a look at this more. Today we're discussing The Straight Story, starring Richard Farnsworth, Sissy Spacek, and kinda Harry Dean Stanton, directed by David Lynch. This is Arnie co-host of Now Playing, and you know, this is Now Playing's 10th year, I've been podcasting 12 years, and the worst part of being an old podcaster is remembering when you were a young podcaster. Stuart in LA. This Jacob, and I'm not dead yet. Kinda sounded. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, guys. I'm confused. G-rated Disney movie? <laughs> no! Aren't we supposed to be talking about Vin Diesel and Charlize Theron and The Fate of the Furious? This is about a vehicle going across the country, very similar to Fast and Furious. Very, very similar, yes. We picked the slowest chase movie <laughs> of all time. And I can't think of a much slower road movie, a less fast or furious movie than the one we're talking about today. David Lynch, the family filmmaker. Lynch has always <laughs> joked his father sees every movie he makes, so they're all family films to him. This isn't the first First time, but it is the first time he's working with Disney and putting out a movie that's G-rated. Lucas, I get. You're doing a bunch of weird aliens. Why not see if Lynch wants to do that? Why would Disney come to him and ask him to do this? I don't know that Disney went to him, did they? I think the screenwriter went to him because they were, were friends. Well, <laughs> more than friend. Let's just kind of walk through this project. Well, crawl through it as appropriate. <laughs> uh, Lynch had made Lost Highway, a very inscrutable, very edgy, trendy noir film. The last thing you would think that he'd be interested in is this project. And indeed, Arnie, the person you're talking about, the screenwriter Mary Sweeney, did not think her husband would want to make this film. <laughs> 
But she did think that David Lynch would put his name on this film because he had been doing that. He had been executive producing a couple indies. He had put his stamp on a really great documentary about the underground comic book artist Robert Crumb called Crumb. That is a quote-unquote David Lynch movie in name only. He had done a hip vampire movie called Nadja and made a cameo in it. That's a David Lynch movie. Someone else made it. They were using his name like a brand. And I think Mary Sweeney thought oh, if we can have David put his name on this, we have a better chance of getting it made. They were surprised as anyone that Lynch said, you know, I'm really moved by your script and I want to make it. But the money came from France. It didn't come from Disney. It came from Studio Canal, Canal Plus, which are not the people that had paid for Lost Highway and Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. The ones that said 70 million and you can make any three movies you want. Lynch was suing them. They would not let him make Ronnie Rocket. They would not let him make Saliva Bubble. They would not let him make the Kafka movie. So he wanted out of that deal, and he was looking for new financiers. And he got $9 million of French money to make this film. And then when it was made, after Disney could be assured that it was a project they could endorse, <laughs> they bought it. Yeah, there was a lot of people, Disney plus Richard Farnsworth, neither of them really wanted to work with Lynch after seeing some of his previous stuff. Lynch had to do a lot of smooth talking to say he could actually make a movie without F-bombs. Did he go into it intending it to be G, or did he just go into it intending it to be kind of a sentimental movie that wouldn't be too harsh, and then the MPAA gave it a G? No, he was shocked when he got the rating. He was like, tell me that again? What are you talking about? He did not think he was making a G-rated movie, but he did know it was a family film. He did, I think, have the idea that this was something that was going to travel on a road more people would be less offended by. I'll put it that way. I don't know if more people will be interested in this because it's a slow movie without a lot of conflict. And Lynch calls it his most experimental film for that reason. And I do think it is. I read he shot this in chronological order, and that's what made it so experimental for him. Yeah, this is a true story. This is a biopic. Lynch's first since Elephant Man, and it was recent events. Alvin Strait did get on a riding mower that went five miles an hour. It took him six weeks in 1994 to meet his brother, and they recreated this very faithfully, at least in its mapping not in the, the plot points. In its mapping, where he went at exactly that time of year and documented everything that he would have seen on the road. All the dramatic events, all the people he encounters are under some scrutiny. I think there was a lot of artistic license. Mary Sweeney and her childhood friend who wrote this script, they got the uh, rights to this story after Alvin died in 96. They wrote a draft very quickly, and the movie came together and was shot at the end of summer 1998. I had read that he actually did sign off on the rights himself before he died for $10,000 and 10% of the profits, and this movie never made any profits, so at least he got the ten grand up front. He specifically said he didn't want the press, and he didn't do the tractor ride for money, but he thought they'd do a good job with his story. And there might have been a little bit of press horror in him, because the year before he died, after he sold the rights, he tried to do another publicized tractor trip, but he did it, like, in winter, and it didn't go well. <laughs> yes, indeed. But I do think that that changes things. If you had heard that David Lynch was telling a, a story about a guy that 
takes a riding lawnmower across country, you'd say, oh, that's fanciful. That's just him being weird again. That he's going to have to honor a real person and a real journey. It takes it to a different realm. That's a different kind of weird. That someone actually did that when they were 73 years old. It is quite a story. And one that I feel like many people could tell. The fact that it ended up with Lynch. Well, I think I have some insights into this. Once I started kind of digging in deep and looking at the leading man, I had an epiphany. Do you guys know Richard Farnsworth? I don't. I've seen him in stuff. I did not recognize him in this. My go-to, the thing that I actually can picture his face in, and he looks very different, he was in Blazing Saddles, and that's a movie I have watched into the ground, so I know everybody in that. Yeah, it's a good movie, but not his movie. No, no, but he's in it. No, I didn't know him either. He's mostly known as a stuntman. He grew up on a farm and went to Hollywood, and anytime they needed a guy on a horse... Richard was your man. He actually did uh, some of the stunts in the chariot races in that Heston Ten Commandments movie. And he really got a breakthrough with Comes a Horseman, a movie that I did not know, a 1978 drama that's kind of a classic Western style, but done in a very muted way. Like it's about an oil baron that's trying to cheat Jane Fonda out of her land. And Richard Farnsworth plays this old coot, her older brother, who's trying to help her keep her land and not get it stolen away. That movie was made in 1978 when Richard was about 58. And seeing him in it, it was a revelation of how close he looked and acted like Jack Nance. And if you remember, Jack Nance had just died around this time. Jack Nance's last film was Last Highway. He appears very briefly. I think that this was Lynch's way of saying goodbye to a brother. I think that he considered Jack one of uh, his filmmaking family. He goes back to his very first film. And being able to tell this story was very personal for him, even though it is obviously about a real-life person. Now that you mentioned I could see Jack Nance in this role, and i got to say, Lynch, some of the, my favorite parts of Twin Peaks is when he's just directing old people to do stuff. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Lynch has got some comedy that he could pull off with some elderly folks. So to have this kind of setting, yeah, whether it's Jack Nance or Richard Farnsworth, I think he could succeed with that. Yeah, I did realize, because coming in, I did feel this was the least Lynchian film, but doing the retrospective we've done of, like, he made a whole movie about the waiter! So Exactly. (laughs) But it wasn't always going to be Richard Farnsworth. I did read that Jack Lemmon, Gregory Peck, James Coburn, John Hurt, they all said no. Mm. I can imagine all of them doing a fine job with it. Not Jack Lemon. I mean, think about 1999, Grumpy Old Men, Grumpier Old Men, that boat movie. I think that he was way too entrenched in comedy. I don't think he could have done this role at that time. He had done Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross not that long before. I'm aware of what he did before the late 90s. But my go-to for films about elderly people at this time, yeah, were those grumpy old men films. And this is such an anti-whatever those are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not a comedy in any classic sense. I really do feel like it was Lynch in many ways getting back to his roots. Not only is he making this homage to Jack Nance, but he's bringing all his Eraserhead folks back with him. Jack Fisk, the production designer and the man that lived in the planet in Eraserhead, this is the first time he's working with Lynch again. And his wife, who was a PA on Eraserhead and would soon get nominated for Oscars for Carrie, is Sissy Spacek. She was there and part of the original crew. Freddie Francis, the cinematographer on this, was the one that helped Lynch shoot 
Elephant Man. And I see a lot of similarities between Elephant Man and this movie, particularly in its emotional quality. I think that this is, for Lynch, a stripping down and getting back and a remembrance for what things are. He's still a relatively young man. I mean, if you can call 53 young, Lynch is not elderly. I normally couldn't, but the closer I get there, the more I want to. (laughs) But you know what I mean? That's middle age. He still has many years of productivity ahead of him. He doesn't have to be thinking about death and the end of the road at this point. But I do think there were things going on in his life that made this film the right choice. And yeah, having your wife write the screenplay, it should be pointed out. Mary Sweeney had worked on editing Blue Velvet and some of the other films and ended up becoming his romantic partner after Isabella Rossellini's relationship collapsed. I think that this was a nice way of working together uh, as well. Are they still married? Because I did not, when I was reading, realize that it was his wife. I just knew it was his longtime collaborator. Yeah, they were together for well over a decade. And I think she left him shortly after Inland Empire. I haven't seen that movie yet, but from what I'm hearing, I guess everybody would, but... yeah we'll talk about i'm interested to revisit it might be telling to say it's the only david lynch movie i've only seen once and this isn't my first time seeing this movie i actually saw it back when it was a new release on video i was still a david lynch fan lost highway had just been a few years earlier my sister visits town every year and usually she tries to do an outing with me marjorie and my grandparents who at that time were in their late 80s and usually because they weren't overly mobile and pretty much all they like to do is go to doctor's offices and eat and watch a movie sometimes so i was always tasked with finding a movie appropriate for 20 somethings 40 somethings and 80 somethings and You know, I'd find a Mr. Holland's Opus here or uh, Saving Private Ryan there. You know, World War II people love World War II movies. And on one of the trips, this was coming out. I'd wanted to see it anyway. So we gathered around the television in my apartment to watch The Straight Story. Oh, how did it go over? Well, the people in our apartment liked it. The people in the apartment next door, not so much. You have a giant subwoofer hooked up or something? (laughs) (laughs) That rumbling mower. (laughs) It was the mower. I had not surround sound. It wasn't that common back then. But I did have two giant stereo speakers hooked up to my television. And maybe it's because the DVD was mixed just for 5.1. Every so often I'd find a movie that didn't have dialogue on the... It didn't have a stereo mix, so the dialogue's on the center channel. Or maybe it's just how Lynch mixed it. I think it was just no center channel. But I had to crank this thing so we could hear what they said. But then when that mower ran, it was like (laughs) shaking the cabinets. And so my neighbor calls the landlord and says, I'm having a ruckus party with the base. There's 89-year-old people sitting watching a movie when the landlord comes to investigate my party. (laughs) It's a couple of geriatrics, a couple of middle-aged college professors and me. Yeah, you're all going downtown, buddy. This is like Wisconsin in here. It's the party state. (laughs) So that was my one time seeing the movie. I remember liking it. I remember hating my neighbors. And I was kind of looking forward to revisiting it. I'm not saying this is an all-time favorite film. I felt I needed to revisit. But I remembered it being good. Yeah, I had seen it in theaters and, and felt like it was really strong. I watched it again when we were 
prepping for the book. I thought it might be my pick to talk about Lynch and underrated because I do feel like this one gets forgotten. People love Lynch for a certain thing and this movie doesn't necessarily traffic in that. But in other ways, I feel like it's Lynch through and through. And that's what I find so interesting about it is that you can bring Disney and Lynch together and neither feels compromised. Yeah, and I'm the newbie here. Like, I hadn't even heard of this one. Like, sure, I hadn't seen Lost Highway before. I knew that film existed. Inland Empire, I know that film exists. This one, I had no idea until this retrospective. Oh, wow, okay. Well, yeah, exactly. It's not cool. I think that's the bottom line, is that it just isn't cool to like this film because there's no hookers, there's no midgets, <laughs> there's no surrealism, and and that's what you typically want. Lynch, at this point, is a brand, and this is off-brand. Admittedly, this is off-brand for now playing, too. We traffic in a lot of genres, but schmaltz usually isn't one of them. I wouldn't call this schmaltzy. I would call it dramatic. But to me, schmaltz is a bad drama. I'd say schmaltz is sappy and highly sentimental. And I don't always give that a negative connotation. I like some schmaltz. There can be good schmaltz and bad schmaltz. And we'll, at the end, I'll say which this is. But when you have an old man traveling across country and teaching life lessons, schmaltz. I don't know that there are any lessons here. In fact, I don't know that there's much conflict here other than old age trying to propel itself against a great distance to reach an end. But uh, I don't know. I guess we'll get into it. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? We'll get through straight story. Well, this is very different from my other David Lynch plot summaries. There's no time loops, no cursing mobsters, no murder mysteries. Instead, we get a straight story in which Richard Farnsworth plays Alvin Strait, a 73-year-old man with emphysema, early diabetes, poor eyesight, circulation issues, and two bad hips. He lives with his mentally challenged adult daughter, Rose, played by Sissy Spacek. Alvin gets a call telling him his brother, Lyle played briefly by Harry Dean Stanton, has had a stroke. The two haven't spoken in about a decade, but the septuagenarian decides to drive north, a 240-mile trip from Lawrence, Iowa to Mount Zion, Wisconsin. A four-hour drive for probably most people listening to the show, but Alvin can't drive due to his eyesight. But he feels he has to take this journey alone. He can't be driven, he can't take a bus. So he modifies his riding lawnmower, welding on a trailer hitch, loading some coolers with weenies and Braunschweiger, and starts the trip at the mower's 5 mile an hour maximum speed. He barely makes it out of town before his mower dies, but he trades it in at the local John Deere dealer for a used but in good shape mower, and Alvin's trek begins again. Along the way, he makes multiple stops and meets several people, including a pregnant runaway teen, some bickering twin brothers, and a group of cyclists. Alvin spouts wisdom and tells anecdotes as he gets ever closer to his brother. The mower does break down 60 miles from Mount Zion, and some locals offer Alvin a ride, which he again refuses, so they help fix his mower, and after getting his social security check from Rose to pay for the repairs, Alvin again hits the road. And the film ends with Alvin and Lyle reunited, sitting on Lyle's porch as credits roll. Yeah, I mean, you can know it in your head, but when you see that magic castle appear, boy, it just... But it should be pointed out that David Lynch was, at this point, also negotiating to have Mulholland Drive on ABC. ABC is owned by Disney, so he had that relationship. And so it's not like they haven't worked together before. It, again, it's just not what we think of either one of them. You're not thinking Disney princesses, though. You, you could do Touchstone or ABC, but mm -hmm. yeah. 
it's it's the actual Disney castle. But once we're in outer space, these opening shots, I'm just waiting for Frank Booth to burst out with the gas mask. I mean, <laughs> it is pure Lynch Americana. I was waiting for the man in the planet or something. But again, a listener pointed out with Twin Peaks, Lynch does not like to break up the flow of his movie with credits. So I've noticed now everything I've seen since then that we've touched of Lynch's, he's going to have his opening credits over something that's fairly static, fairly rote. And after we see directed by David Lynch, then we're going to get to move. And so we get, yeah, a Starfield, very, you know, like Star Trek, the motion pictures orchestra there. Well, like uh, Elephant Man. Yeah, I was waiting for a floating head. We haven't had one of those in a while. Oh, we did have one in Lost Highway. Never mind. Lynch loves those floating heads. <laughs> yeah, but that one was at least attached to a body. <laughs> Just poorly. This is the first time he's been in the Midwest. I mean, Lynch has done small town America before. I mean, maybe Blue Velvet was... I always felt like even though it was shot on the East Coast, that, that was a return to the Pacific Northwest of his boyhood. This feels closer to where he's born. This feels closer to Missoula, Montana, and just that region of his very early childhood. And he's going to really soak that in the lens. And it got me thinking, if he's done, like, helicopter shots before, I never noticed it. But here, he's going to go over a combine harvesting and fields, and it's really just these majestic landscape shots that I just never associated with him before. Yeah, I don't know if he's ever had access to a helicopter or crane shots. Like, that is definitely something I noticed in this one. He had long, sweeping shots. I know he loves showing a, a landscape. That's one of the things in a racer head. Just, here's a wall with some ominous sounds, but yeah, here you get sweeping landscapes. Yeah, I agree. That part feels different, but the syntax feels the same. This is obviously a Lynch movie just i mean later we're gonna get a shot of a grain elevator and we hear that thrum of machinery and you know uh, just the pauses the slowness of the story if this were a disney film in the traditional directed sense it would be overflowing with over orchestrated music and we would have peppiness and people usually have a lot more energy and spunk and i'm gonna go to the store and <laughs> you, you would feel that it was just a zippy happy small town environment and here this is a dawdling maybe even ominous prologue when we hear something falling in the kitchen i mean it could be anything it could be a backwards talking midget when we finally get to earth so to speak i mean you have again i feel this is very lynchian you have this obese neighbor with holding the suntan screen so she can work on her tan eating hostess snowballs but yeah the fact that you hear this thump but you're just zooming in on the wall from the outside you have no idea what that is and you're not going to know for a few minutes like that feels very lynch to me to just here's this mystery but i'm not even going to show you what happened yeah this whole thing reminded me of the beginning of blue velvet only not as nice, right? This is a much worse neighborhood. The grass looks pretty dead. The neighbor there is tanning while eating the snowballs. And when it pans in to somebody falling, I thought we were seeing the brother. I couldn't remember how this movie started, but I knew he was going to see an ailing brother. I thought that that thump in the window was going to be the brother. And then we would jump to our main character, Alvin, and he'd begin the journey to go to these people. But no, in that, again, I, I always am going back to the Twin Peaks waiter or the banker kind of style. We're going to have quite a while with somebody upset that he hasn't shown up at the bar for a couple of hours and slowly going over there and then 
trying to figure out why he's on the floor. <laughs> yeah, David Lynch takes his time. I don't think he's ever made a fast movie. They've cut his stuff fast. Doom felt like a fast movie because of the way it was cut. Did it? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, characters would walk on, get shot, and be dead in 30 <laughs> seconds. I mean, yeah, it definitely felt like blink and you miss some of those characters. But here, I think it's very important, certainly for a movie in which it's going to go five miles an hour for weeks and weeks on end, that we adjust to the rhythm. And I think that this directorial instinct is the right one. Uh, you're right, the character that's failing here is not the character that we will learn is failing. But Alvin Strait is equally as ill as his brother, and so was Richard Farnsworth. It should be said he almost didn't take this part because he did have cancer. He was having trouble walking. And if this movie was about an old man that walked there, he wouldn't have been able to do it. He had to spend most of his time sitting down. Those two canes that he gets, that was straight from Farnsworth's doctor. And he ended up shooting himself and killing himself for the pain because of that cancer a year later. Yeah, no, you get a scene later when he gets mad at the lawnmower for failing. He gets a shotgun. It's an eerie parallel between real life and movie but because that's exactly what he did. He went out like a cowboy. He was like, oh, I'm not going to work anymore. So bang. And it was quite dramatic. Yeah, exactly. He was up for an Academy Award for this movie. Six months later, he did that. If you could find happiness in the tragedy, the fact that he did get an Oscar nomination this late and for this film, it's a good film to end a long career with. Yeah. And he's taking care of a daughter still. We won't find out the nature of the relationship in full until he's out on the road explaining himself to others. But living with him is Rose Strait, his developmentally disabled but adult mother of four, played by Sissy Spacek. Real challenging role, I think. It's hard to uh, not play this for smaltz or overdoing it, but I actually think she does an excellent job here. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. She had a speaking impairment or a mental impairment. I just couldn't get a bead on her. She seems a little socially awkward, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And she just had trouble getting words out. And I didn't know, maybe she just had a stroke. Some stroke victims are like that. It, I did wonder about her and their relationship for a very long time. We're going to find out. He has seven kids but we're only going to meet this one, and it is strange just to see her come in like that, completely unexplained. And Rose was there on set. The actual woman was involved and happy to participate in the movie. She was very pleased that Sissy Spacek captured her so accurately. Yeah, I don't think they ever really say the nature of whatever her, her ailment is. But what's telling to me, more than just the, the stuttering speech, is just kind of the way she's always making birdhouses. And she's like, oh, this one has a red roof and this one has a blue one. And like there was something about those little details like that that just let me know what this character was like. And of course, part of that is is that she's a, a mother hen whose children have been taken away. We, we have a strange poetic moment in which she's looking outside the window at night at one point and sees a child collect a ball and disappear into the night we won't understand for many many minutes this is a fantasy for her that her children she had four of them were taken away from her because the state deemed her an unfit mother perhaps unfairly 
it's hard to tell who's taking care of who. And in sometimes these situations, two elderly people or one elderly person and one person who needs additional care, it is kind of a, a mutually codependent situation where they each fill in the gaps for the other. But the fact that Alvin has so much wrong with him, beginning emphysema, bad eyes, bad legs, it's surprising that he's the brother in the better health. Disney could not have been happy about all the smoking in this film. This man is <laughs> proudly going to pull out cigars in the examination room at the hospital when he's brought in that he just isn't going to change his life. He knows that there's a healthy way to be, and he's just not going to do that. And the only guilt he has about that is Rose. He knows that he's probably going to leave her, and what is her life going to be when, yeah, she doesn't have her kids or him? What will she do? And you can see that pain when he tells her, oh, yeah, the doctor said I'm going to live until I'm 100, and, and she believes him. That's a sad line. I couldn't remember this movie, like I said. I thought it would end with his death. When he starts by getting the diagnosis of emphysema and early diabetes, and then he goes on this trip, this felt like a movie that would appropriately have him reuniting and dying and all that. But no, he's... That he's would be gonna... a smaltzy movie. I would say that that's where <laughs> smaltz comes from. We have an, an inciting incident. I don't know how exciting it is, but we finally learn there's a phone call that, yes, if Alvin is doing bad, then Lyle is doing worse. Uncle Lyle has had a stroke. We don't know what that means. He may not have much longer to live, and Alvin lives 300 miles away. 350 miles, because I was doing some math. He does not travel a whole lot, because Lyle, and I think it's interesting, because, again, maybe I'm reading into this, because Lynch is doing this film. There's lightning going on. At first, Alvin says, I love a lightning storm. But as that lightning striking, they get that call about Lyle. I feel like there is a real spirituality that hangs over all these things, that almost everything here, I feel like the hand of God, in many ways, guides this character and his choices. We will see moments where he makes it to a barn just as the rain pours down, and there just seems to be someone watching over him once he makes the right decision about what he needs to do. It's kind of like Noah, you know, he's just being tested here. As long as he has faith in this crazy mission, he will succeed. There's just something spiritual. Maybe you don't have to define it as Christian per se, although I imagine the character is or was raised as such. But I feel like that quality really does come through in the simplicity of the story. And what the screenplay does, it doesn't tell you that right off the hand, that he's going to make amends with his brother. You just think, oh, his brother had a stroke. He's going to go visit him because he's sick. But you're going to find out throughout the story that there is this whole backstory that they had a falling out. I mean, but I do like the way, again, this is a slow burn. And I do like how things are just gradually revealed to you. Yeah, that actually, the reason why is never really revealed. But before he hits the road, Sissy Spacek does drop that like 11 years earlier, he and his brother had a falling out. They may have had a falling out over something. There was love there, too. And you're going to hear that in the stories, that before it was bad, it was very good. And I think that's what he chooses to remember, that if they both only have a few, who knows, days left, maybe, but not long on this earth to be, uh, why not 
remember the good why not sit next to each other a small team movie would have you have them talk about their problem when they get there they would hash it out you would learn what it was that was the division i just take it to mean it was probably something small it was probably something meaningless as these kinds of riffs tend to be you stole my this you didn't return this someone was drunk and yeah, the hidden alcoholism. Yeah, I feel like it could be lots of things, probably mundane. The point is, when do you let go of that? When do you say it's more important to share the time we have than to hold on what you didn't fulfill in my life? But what I like is Alvin doesn't know how Lyle will receive him. You know, no fight is one-sided. He could make this whole trip just to be turned away. And I think that's kind of the suspense of the end. I mean, Lyle is a mystery. The fact that it's going to be played by Harry Dean Stanton when he finally shows up for a couple of minutes. We don't know that. It, that we don't know how it's going to. We don't know if they're going to reconcile or not. That's kind of the overarching plot as Alvin's going to have his little mini adventures along the way. And this is pretty typical of any road trip movie. The one I kept going back to because I felt it had a similar tone and similar pacing, although a much more tragic end, is Into the Wild. We covered that for our book. And I just feel like these two are of a kind. Two people maybe unprepared for the journeys they're about to take. Yeah, well, it, when you go it alone, I mean, that's what makes this a different kind of road trip movie than a lot of them. Usually it's about mismatched people that are thrown together or like Wild at Heart two people in love against the world. And here, yeah, it's a guy that's not going to take his daughter. I mean, he's kind of leaving her alone. He's looking at her when he's thinking about it, thinking, I may never see her again. Is she going to be okay? I guess he figures he's in a nice community. Lauren, Iowa is where they live. And it is a place where there are more dogs in the road than cars. It is a place where neighbors check in on each other. And even though there might be some kvetching with the old folks there, I think that they all take care of each other. And I think she will be okay, or at least that's what he tells himself, that he has to do this for himself and that she needs to understand because she has a broken family as well. And it's really kind of an A-team moment when he starts welding and putting the trailer <laughs> together and a trailer hitch on the lawnmower. Yeah, it takes her a while to figure out what he's doing, but we know instantly because we've seen the poster. Yeah, and I do like the moment where he goes, I guess, to a hardware store and there's no one below the age of 70 in there. Like, just to get an idea, there, there are very few young people in this film. This is lots of old people, but the whole debate he has trying to buy that darn good grabber that the clerk has and the clerk's pain because he's going to have to wait a couple weeks. It's a real good grabber, Alvin. <laughs> I did really enjoy that back and forth. And then he lets it go for 10 bucks. <laughs> Here's a real mystery for you. What is Braunschweiger? Midwest has got all their weird German meats It's in that. really good. It's kind of like a pate. You put it on crackers. It's a... Uh... Does it not need to be refrigerated? I've always had it cold. He buys some coolers, some styrofoam coolers. Because, <laughs> yeah, he's going to take it on the road. But it's a, it's a type of sausage... It's German. It's it's strong. It's not for everyone, but I, I enjoy it. Okay. Well, this is what he's putting together for his road trip. He gets on his little red riding mower. I think that this is the one. I did not remember that he has a false start here, that it actually fails him. Someone says in the hardware store, you're never going to get past Grotto, which I guess is a town 25 miles away. They're right. He doesn't make it. <laughs> I didn't remember that either. I thought for sure it was this red riding mower the whole time. 
I like when he gets picked up by the bus. I mentioned my grandparents who I watched this with. One of the ladies on the bus goes, my husband was attached to his riding mower. So was my grandfather, come to think of it. He <laughs> loved his riding mower. It was not a good riding mower. It's not like it was a nice John Deere. It was something he bought at a garage sale and fixed up, but damn, he loved that mower. Mm. And nice John Deere, we get a nice cameo from a Lynch favorite. Everett McGill is back as the John Deere salesman that is going to replace this failing mower that he shoots with a shotgun. It's kind of a nice cameo. I guess John Deere's last a real long time because he buys a 66 one, though most of the parts have been replaced, I guess. Yeah, and apparently he really did take a John Deere because John Deere gave him like a $5,000 mower in real life after his trip before this movie. Yeah, it's good promotion for them. I don't think it was designed necessarily to be a advertisement for the tractor company, but certainly works as one. I also didn't realize... This was the last time Everett McGill would act, at least on screen, until the upcoming Twin Peaks. He took many years away. Oh, interesting. Did not know that. And I did enjoy his cameo here. It felt like he was playing Big Ed, right? Still a mechanic and still in a small town taking care of the people. I mean, Alvin's like, I got $300. Well, that sounds good. We'll go work that up. You know, everyone has the same reaction to it. You're doing what? You're doing this interesting thing with this mower. Like, everyone is, like, not sure whether it's ethical to let Alvin go about this way. I mean, and here's a guy that knows. I think he feels better about it selling him a tractor he knows is, is reliable. He can at least say, well, this machine shouldn't fail him on this highway journey. But I think that he, like many people, just feel like this is... Not the only way to get there. I mean, I get that Rose can't drive him. I get that he's too old to, to drive himself. But clearly, he could figure it out. I mean, between buses and, I don't know, newspaper ads. Yeah, but he, he keeps saying, I'm going to do this my way. That is like his motto throughout the film. Yeah, this... <laughs> If this wasn't based on a true story, this would be the logic leap I wouldn't take, is somebody could drive him, Greyhound could get him there. I mean, they talk about how it's 370 miles. That's not that far. That no. is a day's drive. I've driven that round trip in a day. So that's the one thing. But I have known many people to be cantankerous and set in their ways, and I... I care for my grandmother now, and with the aging population, the things that they can no longer do that they used to do are problematic for them. They don't like that loss of control, and so I think that may be part of it here. He's resisting. He, he says he's going to live to 100. He's resisting admitting his age. He's resisting admitting his failings. He's going to keep smoking those Swisher sweets, even though he's been diagnosed with emphysema. So doing it himself is, I think, as much a point of his own pride as anything else. Yeah, you get it in that line where he says, I'm a World War II vet, that I'm not going to be afraid of an Iowa cornfield. And I, you know what? I think that's also, again, I talk about the spirituality, that he has faith that the world will provide if he commits to his decision. He wants to atone. He wants to make amends. Whatever he did wrong with his brother, and I think he accepts partial, if not total, of the blame there, he wants to make it right by going on this journey his way, on his own. And I get that. As an independent person who is actually right now, upon release of this podcast, on a road trip by themselves, pretty long one, not on a riding mower, 
But yeah, I mean, I understand. To me, it makes all the sense in the world. It may not be logical, but it makes all the sense in the world that someone wants to accomplish something for themselves in their own way and that it wouldn't mean as much if other people did it for him. He has to fix what's broken here. And while he's going along the way, he's going to fix other broken people. And that's where the schmaltz comes in for me, yes. This is where the life lessons come in. You've been like, oh, if it was schmaltzy, it would have done this thing. Well, if it was schmaltzy-er, yes, but... Yeah, but they pull away. You know, there's this female hitchhiker. She can't get picked up by anyone. Alvin, I guess he camps out. He sleeps in the back of the trailer at night, builds a little fire. This hitchhiker, who I don't even think they name. Nope walks up to him and you know he gives her a hot dog to cook and yeah he's this is where we're gonna find out more about his life but i again i feel like everything here is understated and there whether it's the screenplay or, or what lynch likes to do he pulls back just enough to not push into that schmaltzy overly emotional territory I just think that when you have him encountering a teenage pregnant runaway and giving her life advice that she should go back home and that she takes it, even though he doesn't do it in a heavy-handed manner, that to me, and again, I'm not saying all schmaltz is bad. I understand it may have a negative connotation, but I don't know how else to describe this overly sentimental sap. So sap schmaltz yeah you need to understand those are insulting terms when you're calling them that you are insulting the film what it's doing is it's being emotionally open it is saying i'm not going to hide behind cool metaphors or pretend that emotions aren't what i'm going after this is a family film this is how it should speak when she leaves a bundle of sticks to honor the metaphor that he explained the night before that is heavy as far as being obvious but it is what you want everyone in the audience, including the four-year-old, to understand that. And I think that this movie is going to be easily processed. It's a straight story. The title is a play on words. Yes, his name is Alvin Straight, but Lynch is also going to just be direct with you. I'm going to tell it to you straight. And that is not always a bad thing. And it doesn't make it smaltz. And the fact that his, I'm using finger quotes here, sappy story about how important family is, is about how he had 14 babies and only seven survived. And then he tells Rose's backstory about her kid getting hurt in a fight. Like, these are not sappy. These are tragic stories he's telling. I'm, I'm not, these are real family strengthening stories here. No, these are all tragedies he's telling. I could almost see it as cautionary tales. Now, I want to applaud the writing here. I like what he says, even though I understand the open sentimentality of it, certain things I still find to be poignant there, including that story. Later on, when he's with the cyclists, he's asked, what's the worst part about being old? He's like, the worst part is remembering when you was young. I, there's truisms in here that still stick with me and affect me. But I understand that it, it's, yeah, it's not a overly nuanced drama. Yeah, and again, to me, Smaltz is when you overplay your hand. Smaltz is when you don't trust the message to come through cleanly, so you wring tears, you wrestle them out of people, usually with music, or usually with just big, overdone performances, or dramatizing in a way that it feels more like preaching. 
proselytizing. I think all he did was share an experience, a horrible experience, about what broke up his daughter's family. And that was enough for this woman to hear to go back. My last word, and then I'll just try not to use the word schmaltz anymore. My final word on this, what I thought of when he told this little girl the story was the movie Parenthood. And I don't know if you guys have seen it or if you remember it that well. Not recently. (laughs) Yeah, I saw it when it came out. I haven't seen it in a decade, but there's a go-to reference for me in there. It's at the end of the movie, and everything's at its most high dramatic point, and it's with Steve Martin and his emotionally disturbed child and his newly pregnant wife, and he lost his job. And his grandmother comes out and gives this metaphor about how when she was a little girl, her friends liked the carousel. They liked the merry-go-round, but she liked the roller coaster because while it may be scary, it had the big dips and everything. And then everybody around is affected kind of like the girl in this movie, you know? The old person tells their little metaphorical story about when they were young, and now people are set on the right path. And Steve Martin just goes, one story from grandma is not going to fix everything. And that's my, that is where I draw my line, is that in this case, one story from grandpa here is going to now set her back on the right path. And we don't necessarily know that. She leaves a bundle of sticks. We don't know how her story ends. I think that's a huge leap. Yeah, we don't even know that she goes home. Yeah, she might have done that to comfort him or to give him the wrong impression. I hear what you're saying, but to me, it's very important not to use words that I feel are derogatory when I like something. And smaltzy is an insult. What you're saying is I can somehow be morally superior to something and yet still fall for it. No, I can say it works. There are many movies that are very obvious at tugging my heartstrings, but they still succeed in making me feel. I just don't feel good about being made to feel that way. I like the way that this movie is doing that, because to me, it doesn't feel heavy-handed. I particularly like the scream of modern living, is what I call it. When when he's out <laughs> on the road, and there's a lady billed as the dear lady, who is just having this string of bad luck. She's got a 40-mile commute back and forth to work, and she's killed 13 deer in seven weeks. And I feel like there's at least half of the people in L.A. that are living some version (laughs) of her life here. The long commutes and the misery. I do love that she's tried playing public enemy real loud to scare him off. Like, this feels like the most Lynchian moment. If Lynch just said, hey, I'm going to add a scene into this film, it does feel like this one where you come across this woman who cannot stop hitting deer. It's so non-sentimental. Like, Alvin is like, I love deer, and then he's cooking it up and eating it. (laughs) The random car wreck moment, I was surprised it wasn't played by Cheryl and Fenn because it really reminded me of Wild at Heart, but... Yeah, you're a good call. Yeah, it does have that similar... Not as disturbing, obviously. No, no, but just the the randomness. The way that the accident happens is very strange, too. It's all sound effects. We, like, do jump cut zooms in on Alvin. I don't know what he's seeing. I think he's going to be hit. I think that a person's going to be hit. I thought it was a very slow rare ending yeah (laughs) so yeah the fact that it was a deer was completely unexpected and to just have this woman come out ranting like after hitting the deer but it was very funny to hear all the things she tried and the fact that she just gets in her beat up car and drives off after killing the deer i love that he had those antlers on his trailer for the rest of the movie though i just i picture him gutting that thing and skinning it and that is not a pretty sight but on the other hand venison for dinner it's better than weenies well i do love there's all these like plastic lawn ornament deer like wherever he stopped for the night and he does get very uncomfortable yeah 
Yeah, I, I just like the fact that it's an open plane. I mean, her plight is that I should be able to see these coming from my, where do they come from? The fact <laughs> that it feels, again, it feels like a, like a punishment from God. God is doing this to me. And how do you process that? And his idea is you make the best out of it. You litter, you know, if life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. If life gives you a dead deer, you eat it for dinner. You, yeah, you make the antlers the decoration. I, I think there is lessons in here, but they don't feel like sermons. And one of the lessons is kids don't do this at home. <laughs> when you do try to ride around on a riding lawnmower on the plains of Iowa, you're going to hit a downward hill that's going to take out your brakes and you're going to nearly die. And so they had to be thinking that the Disney audience needed to be told how dangerous this was. I figure, but it's an exciting moment. I couldn't remember how it went. I knew he wasn't going to roll over on him and kill him. I was worried because the firemen are practicing, like, putting out a fire on a nearby house. I'm like, is he going to run into that? I thought the firemen there might actually be the ones to save him, the, you know, their convenient location. But no, he's going to pull over on his own. And he's gotten smarter. I mean, I like how when he left the first time on that first tractor, he was completely unprepared. And when the thing breaks down is because his hat got blown off the second time he was smart enough. He holds his hat when trucks come by. He has learned lessons on the road. And so he's able to keep this thing upright, stop it from flipping and get it to the bottom of the hill. Here's the crazy thing for me. He runs into the town folks and they're all concerned and they're wondering about his story. And they ask him, how long has he been on the road? And I was doing this math. I'm like, okay, that thing go probably goes five miles an hour. I'm going to say you're riding that, what, 10 hours a day, maybe 50 miles a day. It's, it's been a week, maybe. No, it's been five weeks. How far is he going every day? He's taking a very long time to get to his very sick brother. How is he trimming that beard? It stays the same length. <laughs> <laughs> it took the actual man six weeks. Uh, that, that's just, you're traveling a couple hours a day then. I, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, it took him six weeks, but he did, in real life, stop a couple of times because he ran out of money and had to wait for social security checks. Okay, we do see that happen here. And it's funny because he has to call Rose and he's like, am I still in the same area code? No, you've actually finally left your area code. You've got to do a long distance call. Five weeks later, if you'd, if you'd stopped before the hill, if you'd broken down like one hill earlier, you'd be in your own area code. And the guy he is, he's going to leave three bucks for making that long distance phone call. And you see that debate with the couple, Danny and Darla. They're like, can we let this guy continue? Is it right to be like, okay, your lawnmower is fixed. Keep on going. Shouldn't we drive him? Except he just won't accept the offer. I mean, it's got to be frustrated because you feel like this could happen again. And next time there will be no one to save Alvin. He is going to just roll over. It's in fact shocking it doesn't happen again. Because when you have... Danny telling him, you know, there's much worse hills before you get to your destination. This is not what a riding lawnmower is meant to do. They're not meant to haul trailers. They're not meant to break on steep hills and deal with the 5% inclines. And so, yeah, it is shocking that he would survive this. Yeah. And it didn't feel that way. I can't say for much of this movie, I'm in suspense. Is, is this guy going to survive? But it was a nice reminder, particularly for young, impressionable minds who might go home and try and take a lawnmower <laughs> somewhere to think, you know what? This was an act of faith. 
this is a parable. This is not to be taken literally. Even if it is a true story, don't do it at home. And my favorite scene happens while he's in this town because he's there, I don't know, for a week, a couple of weeks while he's waiting for the money, waiting to get his mower repaired. You know, he sits down in a bar with another elderly man. They're both World War II vets. And again, if I felt this was sap, it's too real for me. This conversation they have about World War II. All my buddies' faces are still young and I have more years than they've lost. And then the stories they go into, this just doesn't, these aren't G-rated Disney World War II stories they're going to tell. Maybe it's because I was raised around a whole lot of World War II vets, but this does feel very real, but also that everybody does have this kind of story. And that's one thing about that generation I don't think ours will ever understand, is the simple camaraderie that virtually everybody of a certain age fought in that war because of the draft and they have a bond because of that you know that's why my grandfather was very big into the vfw he couldn't talk about what happened to him during the war to even his wife for decades but then he finally got in the vfw and started talking to others who had the same experience and so that he found another person who'd been in the war and tells this story i do like the story i I, Stuart, do you know if it's true because it's really a very sad tale and you could see why when he came back from the war he drank a lot he killed one of his uh, fellow soldiers accidentally it was a scout who'd been sent out for recon scout was sneaking back and alvin didn't know it was him thought it was an enemy and shot him yeah i don't know the veracity of this story i i will say it to me the way the scene plays this feels like maybe the first time alvin has ever said it aloud to another person this may be uh, the first time he's confessed his sin yeah, I'll agree with that. And it, it also goes along, again, finding somebody else who'd been in the war, somebody else who had a hard time of it in the war, is somebody you can then confide in. And this is also where he talks about his alcoholism and coming back from the war and how he had to preacher help him. You know, you said you, that you weren't sure if he was Christian, but a preacher helped him to stop drinking and stop being so mean. And later on, he's going to take a beer, and the story of the alcoholism is going to really make that moment feel ominous to me. It's like the man with emphysema still smoking his cigars. Well, yeah. I mean, what you're seeing is a character that doesn't always do the right thing, but it's what he needed to because he had reached the end. I mean, he wasn't going to get a DUI. He was literally just (laughs) down the road from where he needed to be. And I'm just not sure how much damage you could do, even if you were plowed on a plow. So... But my question, is this guy someone that he met at the bar, or is this the guy that brought the money to him? I couldn't tell whether he was an old friend or just a fellow soldier. I took it as stranger at the bar. Okay. Yeah, because I thought Rose just mailed him the check. It would just take a day. We're not sure how he got the money, but he does end up getting more money. He only had $52, and that now he has money. But he doesn't want to pay. He doesn't want to pay what the Olsen twins. Yeah. The Olsen twins. Mary, <laughs> don't the Olsen twins have enough money with their fashion lines and their directed DVD <laughs> movies? Different Olsen twins. <laughs> no one wants to pay for those fur coats, what they're asking. <laughs> 
I just couldn't stop laughing when he was going to talk to the Olsen twins. But, but yes, here's another life lesson from Grandpa about how important a brother of that same age is. And he's also going to do it in a very funny way and dick her down on the price. Which is apparently the character. I, I guess his occupation was that he was like a horse wrangler. And so he was always negotiating. And throughout his whole life, he always talked people out of what they wanted to, him to pay. I wish there was more of it. I like Alvin as a character, and he has these scenes that you just, you're rooting for him because he's completely right in everything. And the way he's played by Farnsworth is just with that little smile. It's a fine line because he could come off as arrogant. He could come off as grumpy you know again the grumpy old man thing that was going on in the 90s there's a lot of ways this could be played negatively but he does it with just a little gleam of in his eye and he always comes across as good-natured and so you're always on his side in these moments and i do like this it's a comedic moment with the olsen twins when he's talking him down i i just like it on that level as well you know another thing that could be played uh, too loudly but i think is just right i want to compliment Angelo Badalamente's score, which is not his traditional synth-laden, ominous sounds. I mean, this doesn't have jazz. I mean, you're really not snapping your finger to it. It's harmonica. It feels like the kind of score they would always put in here, but more muted, more played down. It's not the kind of score that would make you cry just listening to it but on its own. No, it's actually, I think, some feel-good music. I thought it was kind of upbeat, little bluegrass, kind of reminded me a little bit of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou that came out around the same time. That kind of music had a very brief comeback of the blue bluegrass style. What surprised me is that it was Badalamenti. That it would be this music in this movie doesn't shock me. That Badalamenti has this range I never would have guessed. Because of how Lynch likes him to play music, I associate him with jazz and brooding. But I actually did grab the CD used after watching this movie. I'm like, that is music I would actually just listen to in the background. Yeah, he played it at the concert, the David Lynch Festival of Disruption. This is a piece that he's really proud of. I think for exactly that reason, Arnie, I think that it's not the kind of thing he's usually asked to make. And so how wonderful that you can prove that you can uh, when the moment arrives. And... Our hero does get back on the road. Very few stops at this point. He's almost there. It's pointed out there's only 60 miles left. And no, they don't play up the hills. They play up more of the psychological. We're now starting to think, what's it going to be like when you get there? What were these people like when they were in better communication? He meets this priest, and that's where he shares his story about how they grew up on a farm, doing chores, playing games. He's asked, what happened? Yeah, anger plus vanity plus liquor equals two brothers who haven't spoken. What really, I guess, builds the tension for me, though, is this priest was at the hospital when Lyle had his stroke and was admitted, and he's like, he never mentioned a brother. I'm like, ooh, okay, now we don't know how this is going to play out. But I think we're also confirmed that he's not dead. There was a part of me that was worried that he'd get there too late because it's taking so long. I was wondering if that was going to be the end. They're going to play it for a beat at the end if Lyle's still there. Right. Again, we're told by a bartender when Alvin goes to get a beer, he's like, well, this is where he lives if he's there at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there is an element to that. It's, it would be wrong to call it suspense, per se, but you do start to contemplate what will it finally be for him to arrive. We're no longer worried about the journey itself. And 
he gets pretty close when it one last backfire, you know, one last moment of doubt. And here through Providence comes a bigger tractor to not even give him a ride and not even, I thought he might even end up walking, but no, it's just have faith. Try that engine again. She'll she'll start. In real life, that tractor had to drag him the last two miles. <laughs> I, I thought that's where they were going to go too. That it would tow him in. I get what they wanted. They again, it's very important thematically to say you got to do it on your own. That no one can get you there except God, I guess. And so he does get there. Yeah, life isn't as clean as the movies when it comes to those kinds of messages. Clearly, but you know what? I have roots in these kinds of communities. Some of my grandparents and extended family live in little shacks on the sides of roads in the middle of nowhere. And so when he gets there, it did stir something in me. Just seeing that it. It sense memories of childhood, and I really, yeah, I started to, to really think about what it would be like to reconnect with family members I hadn't seen before. I did not know. I don't know that he was billed. I did not know it was Stanton that was going to come out with the walker that Alvin didn't want to use. Yes, I did think that was funny. One's got two canes, one's got a walker. And again, they play it for a beat. Alvin calls out Lyle's name, and you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and then you do hear Lyle call back. And again, in this understated performance, they just go and sit on the porch and look at the stars, and that's it. Yep, all that needs to be said, in my opinion. Exactly, yeah. It's kind of a Lynchian ending. You can draw your own conclusions, but the fact that they have what little conversation they have, and the fact that they're sitting there amicably, you figure this is considered a happy ending. I was left in suspense, though. I mean... (laughs) How the hell did he get home? He was so big on, I have to do this my way. I'm not taking a bus. I'm not going to let anyone drive me. And I had to look up how he got home. Uh, Lyle's son drove him home. No, okay. <laughs> it's a good point that didn't occur to me because obviously the ending is is here. He's not going home. They're, they're together. But you're right. In practical terms, he did have to get back to his life in Iowa. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Straight Story? Jacob. This is a very different kind of film than we've discussed with most of these Lynch ones. It it is a straight story, but there's something that Lynch captures in his camera work. Again, we talked about these crane shots and these helicopter shots. I do love a good road trip, and I do love letting my mind just wander as I look at the scenery, whether it's the Midwest or, you know, going through Texas and not being a whole lot to look at. And I feel like this movie kind of captures that spirit. You could kind of just take it in because it's not a complex movie at all. You could kind of just take it in and let your mind wander. What is the story about this little barn that Alvin pulls into when it's raining? That's the kind of stuff I love about a road trip. And I feel like this really captured that and that it's just so understated. I I feel it really lets these characters breathe that it's not schmaltz because we're not hit over the head. It's every time with with here and here's the moral of my story. Yeah, they say things and they have points to them, but I, I feel like the script pulls away at the right moment and they stay for the right amount of time. And then, and then you go on to the next spot. Yeah. This I'm surprised how much I really enjoyed it. G rated at 40 years old, a G rated Disney film. This is a, yeah. Strong recommend. Stuart. Yeah. And this is a movie that if someone asked me, well, what does a director do that I would pull up? Uh, This is what I would use to instruct them. This is what a director does. Because we've all seen these gentle geezer comedies. And they usually, for me anyway, go so wrong when they overplay their hand. There was a movie called Danny Deck Chair. I don't know if you remember this, but it's about some slub that tied a bunch of helium balloons to his recliner and flies off and has some adventures. 
I wouldn't dare watch that movie. All I needed to see was that trailer to know that that plays against everything that I want to see in my entertainment. And here, Lynch finds the movie I didn't know existed here. It's instructional in the best sense. It's a poem on how to live your life that's not overly preachy. It doesn't need for you to be religious, but it does feel quite spiritually enriching to see it. I feel quite moved basking in the slowness and the simplicity of this straight story. It's proof that Lynch can be weird and surprise us still by taking an unexpected route and a direct route all at the same time. Uh, all I know is that Fast and Furious would love to have the heart that this movie is. Whatever this movie might be lacking in adrenaline and drag racing and booty shots, I do think, yeah, it's a film that everyone should see. It's a strong recommend. I think the film could use a little more booty shots, and I did well up when Paul Walker said his final goodbye in the last Fast and Furious film. I didn't well up when Alvin and Lyle came back together, so... Really? Yeah. No. Oh, I definitely did. Oh. So, I guess uh, Fast and Furious has gotten more tears out of me than the straight story. <laughs> oh. Well, just wait until there's eight more straight story sequels. They got, they got a little build. <laughs> the eighth one will be called, you know, Straight, S-T-R-8. <laughs> it's the fate of the straight. <laughs> but, no... This movie gets a solid recommend from me. I really think this is a family film done well. It is based on a true story, but that doesn't always mean that the movies are going to feel realistic. This one comes across as a very honest film. It is emotionally honest. It feels like it has got real people instead of characters, even if we do have Alvin going around with his little stories. The stories he tells are unique enough and understated enough that they don't feel like that lawn chair movie you're mentioning, Stuart. So I think it's well acted. I think the production values are aces. I've never seen Lynch work on such a sweeping scale like this. He's always so close up and things to get the vistas we do. I see Lynch's touch, but if I didn't know, I wouldn't have pegged it as a Lynch movie based upon its cinematography and things. I like to see him spreading his wings. I like to see the way Badalamenti spreads his wings with the score here. I think all the actors are really good in it, and it's going to get a really solid recommend from me. No, oh, great. Three for three. And we haven't had that in a while for Lynch. You know, he's been, at least with one of us, not quite hitting the mark for quite some time. Yeah, and that one does shift around, so it's... Yeah, I didn't like Wild at Heart. I was the one. And none of us liked Fire Walk with me. Yeah, true. And Hotel Room. <laughs> yes, there's that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> but will we like Fate of the Furious? Again, we apologize that it's not out today. I am going to try to get the show out fast and furious, so maybe that show will have an early release even as soon as Friday. So keep an eye on the Now Playing feed. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter to find out as soon as that show is released. And also, in the meantime, if you have some hours to fill, our spring donation drives are going on. The Donation Drive Part 1 is the entire Twin Peaks retrospective series. We've done every episode. You can hear them at nowpeakingpodcast.com. And part two is we've got a bunch of new movies coming up with the Pirates of the Caribbean series, plus adding on to Planet of the Apes and Alien. So you can find out all the details 
by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com or going to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate, all lowercase. So all that at nowplayingpodcast.com and listeners, thank you for your support. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And I haven't had a drink in a number of years, but now I'm going to have me a cold beer. I'll be turning in. I'll uh, see you in the morning then before you go. I'm going to leave awful early. It's been a genuine pleasure having you here, Alvin. Write to us sometime. I will. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's David Lynch Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Did you ride that thing all the way out here to see me? I did, Lyle. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to NowPeakingPodcast.com to hear Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. It's an amazing thing what you can see while you're sitting. And go to BooksAndNachos.com to hear reviews of all the Twin Peaks-related books and audiobooks. We're waiting. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. The sky is sure full of stars tonight. It's going to cost him a bundle to fix that more. I don't think he's got that kind of money. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. This trip is a hard swallow of my pride. I just hope I'm not too late. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to thank you for your kindness to a stranger. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. We'd talk to each other until we went to sleep. We'd talk about the stars, whether there might be somebody else like us out in space, places we wanted to go and It made our trials seem smaller. Now Playing is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. I know to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Well, you're a kind man talking to a stubborn man. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. If you don't make some changes quickly, there will be some serious consequences. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. There's no one knows your life better than a brother that's near your age. He knows who you are and what you are better than anyone on earth. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017. All rights reserved.
and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Dad, I miss you, Dad. I love you, Rosie. I miss you, Dad. Bye, Dad. Bye, Dad. What's your dad doing with that gun? I don't know. No! Aren't we supposed to be talking about Vin Diesel and, uh, what's her name? I can't even remember the character. Charlize Theron? Yeah, Charlize Theron and... I don't know. I guess we'll get into it. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? We'll get through straight story. Oh my god, I knew I forgot something. Um, I don't have a plot summary. Okay. <laughs> I don't have a plot summary for either of these. <laughs> All right, well, we can do it after yeah. on Saturday if you yeah, want. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a pickup on Saturday for the plot summaries. <laughs>